as you are turning in your Bibles to the book of Acts, pray with me again. God of all glory and grace, the scripture tells us that you know our needs even before we ask, and there is nothing we need more than more of you. By the power of your Holy Spirit, use the truth of your word to show us more of your radiant glory and your perfect goodness and your beautiful grace. Teach us more of your holiness, your justice, and your love. Use that knowledge to draw us closer to you and to grow us into the likeness of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. What does God know about trials that we do not? Only everything. Did you know that there are trees that thrive and reproduce precisely because of periodic fires? What seems like it would bring their ultimate destruction actually serves God's purpose. This is particularly true of certain types of pines, which have serotonous, that's like the word serotonin, they have serotonous cones that are sort of glued shut with resin. The mature seeds remain inside until severe heat from fire melts the resin and opens the cones. As the seeds later fall out of the now dry and open cones, wind and gravity disperses them to germinate elsewhere. The stoning of Stephen in Jerusalem sparked a fire of persecution that did not destroy or diminish the gospel of Jesus Christ, but instead caused the church to spread and grow beyond the boundaries of Jerusalem. The second century North African theologian Tertullian is quoted as having written that the blood of the Christians is the seed of the church's growth. The blood of the Christians is the seed of the church's growth. Stephen's death at the hands of the Sanhedrin becomes the turning point that triggers a broader persecution against the church. And it appears that Saul spearheads this attack. But Saul's efforts are no match for the plan of God and the power of his spirit to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, what Saul meant for evil, God meant for good. Yes, you should hear echoes Of Joseph's words to his brothers. This persecution moves the church in the exact direction of God's command, and the scattered message yields great fruit. Philip's early ministry also highlights the Spirit's work beyond Jerusalem. Read with me Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. 
when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Following Stephen's death, Saul's persecution scatters the church. Stephen's stoning sparks the first severe persecution of the Christian church, and young Saul becomes the tip of the spear. You remember Saul, the young man who was present as the Sanhedrin stoned Stephen, and not merely a coat hanger, a cloak watcher, chapter 7, verse 58, but also quite clearly approving of their action, 8.1. Saul was a devout Pharisee and a student of the respected rabbi Gamaliel, the very same one who we heard from Luke advised the Sanhedrin, himself a member of the Sanhedrin, to leave the apostles alone. Turn back to Acts 5, verses 34 to 39. It's not on the screen, so you're actually going to have to look. I would also recommend that you always keep your Bibles open in front of you while I'm preaching because I'm quite literally referring to the text in order of the verses as they appear as we read them. So look at with me at chapter 5, verses 34 to 39. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do to these men. Now, these were apostles. For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. 37. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. The council seemed to have listened to Gamaliel's recommendation up to this point with Stephen, but this violent action against one of Jesus' followers opens up the floodgates. I picture a dam being broken and the water under pressure gushing forth in destructive fashion. Nearly all the the Christians are in danger now, except possibly with the exception of the apostles themselves. Our text says that the apostles stayed. I can think of three probable reasons that the apostles stayed. They were less of a target. They were less afraid. Remember, they've already had an experience of learning this lesson when they scattered from Jesus. And thirdly, that they are still establishing spiritual roots in Jerusalem. The Jerusalem church would remain influential, if not central, to the broader church as it spread. So back to the first reason that they were likely less of a target. Stephen was a Hellenistic Jew, and the Hellenists likely felt the most initial heat of persecution. Not only are the apostles Hebraistic Jews, but they are also prominent. And Luke has told us again in his gospel and in Acts repeatedly that the Sanhedrin demonstrated their fear of the people. But in his youthful zeal, Saul can likely justify himself that that they're still kind of following Gamaliel's wisdom. 
while at the same time being able to run wild in a holy war against the Christians. Luke's readers may have some idea, but Saul himself at this point does not yet know that he is on the wrong side of this holy war. He is, in fact, fighting against God. So he has completely missed the point of Gamaliel's advice. If it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. Notice that the previous ones that Gamaliel spoke about, they scattered, and that scattering caused them to die out. Is that what happens in this context? Oh, no. The scattering causes the spread of the gospel. Right in the middle of these verses we're reading is a note that Stephen was not dishonored in death, verse 2, even here on earth. Mention of this might seem strange without some cultural context. Two opposing forces are in play here. First of all, dying unburied was the greatest dishonor possible in the ancient Mediterranean world. So even risking one's life to bury the dead was considered honorable and heroic. A background commentary continues, however, on the other hand, Jewish law forbade public mourning for a condemned criminal, but for anyone else, it was considered a pious duty. So Stephen's pious friends ignored the illegal ruling of the highest Jewish court to honor their friend. No doubt this bold action by the believers only gives Saul more, Saul more excuse and motivation for his actions. In Saul's misdirected zeal, we find him making every effort to ravage, or that word means to lay waste to the church, to devote it to destruction. It's not as if Saul would have been doing this thing either simply of his own accord. He would have needed permission. He would have needed authorization from the Sanhedrin to take temple guards with him, to go into people's homes and arrest them. The Greek word there meaning to lead someone away by force against their will. So some of your translations say dragging off. Dragging off anyone that he questioned who would not deny their allegiance to Jesus. Or anyone who had been accused of such by others, no doubt. And then in prison, someplace where they were held captive under guard, they would likely await trial. As if going from house to house isn't bad enough, Saul is extreme in the sense that he's dragging off women as well as men, which is beyond what most of his contemporaries would have felt necessary. With Saul carting off to jail to await trial, the kind of trial which they have just seen resulted in Stephen stoning, anyone who has even the faintest whiff of Jesus on them, both men and women, you can imagine how this scatters the church out of Jerusalem to get some breathing room from this persecution. But what Saul and the Sanhedrin would count as a success, look how we've run them out of Jerusalem. Luke is sure to show that God is providentially at work even in this. Verse 4 tells us that the dispersed disciples spread the gospel beyond Jerusalem. Although the persecution is intended to silence the followers of Jesus and undoubtedly to deter others from joining them, this crazy upheaval in the personal lives of the believers 
turns out to be the very thing that fulfills Christ's command to them. From what Luke says in in verse 1c and verse 4, and they were scattered all throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, and then now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. When you hear that, what are you undoubtedly expected to remember from the beginning of this book? Acts 1.8. And you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, Jesus told them. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and then where? In Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Do you think Luke has done that by accident? Of course not. Again, this is precisely how their scattering from persecution is then described. Here's a map of Judea and Samaria for you to look at. The northern part of what you're seeing of this region of of what you commonly know as Israel, that northern part would have been the region of Samaria, sort of to the south alongside the Dead Sea, and and even further north, to the lowest part alongside the Dead Sea is a region called uh, Idumea. So these three sections there make up this overall region, but it's from Jerusalem there, sort of toward the center, that they are spread out all in Judea and Samaria, sharing the gospel. And what happens when they are scattered? Everywhere they passed through, they evangelized. That's the Greek word. They evangelized, proclaiming, announcing good news. Specifically, they announced the word, which here is certainly understood to mean the gospel message of salvation through Jesus Christ. The gospel message of salvation through Jesus Christ is that He alone makes us right with God and invites us into his kingdom. If you would be in God's kingdom, enter through the gate. That is Jesus Christ. If you would be right with God, there is only one who is the way, the truth, and the life. That is Jesus Christ. This same map leads us forward into verses 5 and 8, 5 to 8, because You see there on your map, there's a little bit of uh, the travels of Philip, which we'll talk about more. The first one for you now is from Jerusalem north toward uh, Samaria. So Philip's faithfulness, verses 5 to 8, in particular, highlights the Spirit's fruitfulness in the region of Samaria. Here Luke gives Philip as a prominent example of how God used this dispersion of the believers out of Jerusalem to fulfill God's promise and Christ's imperative. By the way, this Philip is not the apostle. You remember that there's a Philip who's an apostle, a Philip who in John's gospel, we're told of him, he's the one who brings Nathanael to Jesus. And Nathanael's like, hang on, what good comes out of Nazareth? (laughs) And Philip says, come and see. Not that Philip the apostle. There is an apostle who's named Philip, but this is Philip who becomes known in in Acts as Philip the evangelist. Remember, this is the Philip who was one of the seven chosen alongside Stephen and others. So he becomes known as Philip the evangelist. Now, this also allows Luke to highlight the Spirit's work through yet another faithful servant in the line of Jesus and the apostles, 
and Stephen. So we're told that Philip goes down, that's what they would say, not south, but down in elevation from the higher city of Jerusalem down to the main city of Samaria or to a key city in Samaria. Some manuscripts say a instead of the. So here's another map. Philip likely went either to the city of Samaria, which at this point was also called Sebasti, an extremely pagan city with much Greek influence, or he went down to the ancient town of Shechem, which was the religious center for the Samaritans. On this map, since Shechem isn't labeled, do you see the part traveling north from Jerusalem to Sebasti or Samaria, right where there's a a bend? That's where Shechem would be located. So one of those two places is where he would have gone. I kind of think he probably went to the city of Samaria. Either way, Philip journeyed straight into the heart of Samaria. You've probably heard it said in other teaching concerning the life and times of Jesus that the relationship between the Jews and mixed-breed Samaritan Jews was strained, to say the least. The beginning of these issues dates all the way back to the divided kingdom, a history that I believe is worth reviewing to see God's superintendence and to put these relationships in perspective. So let's rewind all the way to the time of Solomon. You remember that Solomon was king over Israel after his father David. And at that time, Jeroboam was a military commander under Solomon during his reign. But because Solomon intermarried with foreign women who worshipped foreign gods, which God had forbidden them to do, and Solomon allowed his wives to worship foreign gods, God told both Solomon that discipline would come, and God told Jeroboam that he would make a kingdom from him as well because of Solomon's sin. When Solomon heard this, he sought Jeroboam's life, but Jeroboam fled to Egypt. When Solomon died and his son Rehoboam became king, Jeroboam returned. So here's a map of Jeroboam's return from Egypt to the land of Israel. That map will also show you the divided kingdom. Because of because Rehoboam, Solomon's son, foolishly overtaxed the people, you know how much you love taxes. You know that it's a necessary part of having a, a government. But Rehoboam foolishly overtaxed the people against the advice of those who were older than him. The northern ten tribes split off and made Jeroboam their king. Jeroboam knew it would be impossible to worship now in Jerusalem, so he established a couple of different sites of worship in the north. So dating all the way back to this point, then the northern tribes were worshiping separately from the southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin. Later, when Omri was king in Israel, he set up Samaria as the capital. So even if we go back to that previous map, there we go, Samaria as the capital, such would have been the ruling center, this capital of Samaria, of the power of the likes of the infamous King Ahab and his wife Jezebel. Fast forward through many godless kings in Israel to around, to around 720 to 722 BC when the Assyrian Empire laid siege to Samaria. During this time period, Jews from the northern tribes were not only deported, 
but they were forced to intermarry with other peoples under Assyrian control so that assimilation would weaken any potential threats of uprising. So they deliberately watered down the people groups so that they would lose their identity. That was a plan of the Assyrians, and it worked. So this deportation and assimilation resulted in what is sometimes called the Lost Ten Tribes of Israel, and eventually to a mix of Jews with other nations in the north that would become known as Samaritans. The the Assyrians rebuilt Samaria to be a provincial capital, and it remained so as new empires rose to power. For those of you who maybe have, have this memorized, you might recall the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Medes and the Persians, and then the Greeks, right? Even though Judah was conquered by, by the Babylonians also in 586 BC, and many Jews from Judah, the south, Judah and Benjamin, they were led into captivity less than a century and a half after the Assyrians took Samaria. These people from the south, they were able to maintain their identity as Jews. When they were allowed to return and rebuild under the Medo-Persian King Cyrus, their identity and worship was intact. During this same era, the Samaritans broke off and created their own sect of worship, making for themselves a temple on a place called Mount Gerizim. So that clear religious distinction continued all the way to the time of Christ. And you'll recall the Samaritan woman at the well having a conversation with Jesus that referenced distinct mountains for worship. John 4, verses 19 to 24. Do you remember Jesus' response? The time is coming and is now here where people will neither worship on this mountain nor that one, but they will worship in spirit and in truth. Just for historical reference, one last thing if you're following me in this historical review, regarding the capital city of Samaria, before Philip preached there, it experienced a change of hands three more times before the days of Christ in the early church. In the Hellenistic period, remember that's the Greek Alexander the Great quickly conquering the Persian Empire. So during the Hellenistic period, the Samaritan uh, governor rebelled and the city was destroyed and rebuilt as a Hellenistic city. But then when the Greek Empire was divided into four parts after Alexander, there was a Jewish high priest and ruler in Judea whose name was John Hyrcanus. He was a son of uh, one of the Maccabees. He destroyed the city and regained control of it for the Jews. That was about 110 BC. Remember, now we're counting down towards AD. Then the Roman Empire came. When Pompey seized control of Syria, Palestine, for Rome in the middle of the first millennium BC, Samaria again fell into foreign hands. After Rome annexed Samaria into the larger region of Syria, it was given to King Herod, who rebuilt the city as a Roman city and renamed it Sebasti. That's a lot of history of hurt feelings between the Jews and the Samaritans. And those hurt feelings and animosity cut both ways. But one of the key features of Acts is that God is breaking down barriers as to who can come into God's kingdom, who can join the people of God, because of the way that Jesus Christ fulfills Old Testament promise. So we see Philip at the front 
leading this charge. Philip is the tip of the spear in evangelism. Thank you, Philip, for trusting Jesus enough to see people through his eyes, putting away all prior prejudice and fear, and pursuing them for Christ as people who are made in God's image and who need rescuing because of their rebellion. As we look at verses 6 to 8, we're reminded of several things that we have seen repeatedly so far in Acts after Pentecost. First, the Holy Spirit is the source. He is the power behind the miraculous signs. He is the persuasive worker behind the proclamation, both in the preacher, Philip, and in the hearers who are converted. In this case, the Samaritans on this, in this storied city. Let's peek ahead to the evidence that this is what happens in chapter 8, verse 12. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So we know that many people did come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Whole crowds of people, back in verses 6 to 8, whole crowds of people are listening to the message and, and are greatly impacted quickly and dramatically. Why? Because of the Spirit's work at this time through Philip to cast out demons and to heal. Can you imagine being there in a situation where people are bringing the demon-possessed? And they're bringing people who are, are plainly disabled. And such people are instantaneously and completely healed. There is never a hint of doubt that these miracles are truly taking place. And they are confirmation their confirmation of the message being preached. Jesus is the promised Messiah, and he remains the risen Lord, and he has poured out this spirit upon people whose power you are now witnessing. It's no wonder that they listened to what he said, and it's no wonder that many became disciples of Jesus joining his church. I wonder if it does not seem to you to be the intent of the New Testament, that God's people are supposed to be so different that the change that God has wrought in us is obvious, that it cannot be denied. Finally, doesn't it make sense that from this miraculous work and with people coming to faith in Jesus that there is an out-of-the-ordinary degree and magnitude of joy? overflowing, and joy is the emotion of great happiness and pleasure. Is it any surprise that there is great joy in that city? There is great rejoicing at the work of God and saving faith in Jesus Christ. So what do the fires of persecution do to Christ's church? Stephen's martyrdom became a shining beacon of spirit-filled comfort and courage to the finish line. What about you? Are you praying for God to make you a shining beacon of spirit-filled comfort and courage to the finish line? Persecuting the Christians wouldn't stop Christ from building his church. One of the primary perpetrators of this evil, Saul, would soon be won to Christ to become the premier missionary 
the premier missionary of the early church, and become the foundationer builder of doctrine for the church. Who has written the most books that the Holy Spirit preserved in the New Testament? What's his name? Paul. Same guy. Killing Stephen wouldn't stop Jesus from raising up spirit-filled men to take his place. Philip became a primary example of faithfulness and fruitful ministry in the Spirit, spreading out beyond Jerusalem, fulfilling Christ's own plan and command for his church. When I think about the number of young people and children that are in a church like ours, Maybe a third of us are under the age of 20. Do you know what I see? Evangelists and missionaries, future disciples who will love Jesus at any cost. And they're following our lead. It reminds me that probably the most effective thing that we can do for them is to pray. (laughs) Pray for them and pray for our willingness to let them go when they spread out from our Jerusalem. So how should we think about the fires of persecution? The fires of persecution prove that which is the genuine article. Whom God has transformed through faith in Jesus. The fires of persecution purify by burning away our baggage. The fires of persecution place us in situations beyond our comfort to depend on God and push us beyond our self-imposed boundaries in order to show the mighty work of God that he is making for himself a people for his own possession from every ethnicity and language and nation. Praise God for the truth of his word to give us some perspective on our trials. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your revealed truth. We thank you for the plain evidence that you take godless and rebellious individuals and make them a bright beacon of the transforming power of the gospel of your Son. We pray that you will make us into Stephens and Philips and Pauls, that we may be always growing to be more like Jesus and always proclaiming that in him is the only true salvation, the single means to be perfectly restored in relationship to you, God. And may you receive all the glory for building your church. Amen.